Hey everybody, it's Dave from the Leader Lab Podcast. I am so excited. My new book, The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies and People Generate Great Ideas, is finally published. You can get a copy of the book at your bookseller of choice, or you can get a free copy of it on audiobook from our friends at Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash lead, register for your free 30-day trial of Audible, and you can even download your first audiobook right from there. Friends, thank you so much for your support leading up to and even after the publication of this book. I could not have done it without you. This is your book just as much as it is mine, and I hope you read the book, enjoy the book, and please let me know your thoughts after you finish it. I'd love to hear them. Thank you so much for all of your support. This is Ray Fisman. And this is Tim Sullivan, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name's Ray Fisman. I'm a professor of economics at Columbia Business School, and I've spent my professional life studying both the good and bad things that organizations do. And I'm Tim Sullivan. I'm the editorial director of Harvard Business Review Press. I also work on the magazine and on our website and uh, have spent my entire career in book publishing. Mm. And together, you guys are collectively the authors of the new-ish book, The Org. It, it came out a little while ago, and I have to apologize to my listeners because I should have had this come out right off the beginning, but um, I was, I was uh, as listener, regular listeners will know, I was a little busy writing my, my own thing, so I didn't get a chance to get to this in time, but I absolutely love it and want to highlight it and make sure we talk a bit about it because it it's basically a great book to explain all of the little subtle nuances, sometimes the things that frustrate you, other times the things that just sort of amaze you about how organizations work. And, and office life is something that's been parodied and ripped to shreds. Um, again and again from Dilbert to the live action version of Dilbert being the office to movies like office space in the end though, there actually is kind of a logic behind why things are happening. And some of it, we don't always see. And I, I think what frames it all. And you got, you talk about this in the beginning of the book is this idea of trade-offs that organizations and organizational leaders are always looking at a myriad of different ways they could structure something and looking at all of the different trade-offs. So tell me, tell me a bit about how trade-offs shape uh, organizational structure and organizational culture. Yeah, well, I, in the book, we, we tell the story of the American Airlines website, um, that there is a design guy. He's trying to buy a ticket at the American Airlines website, and it's terrible. He can't even figure out like where to put in his travel dates because the page is so crowded with um, ads for promotions and travel deals and all sorts of other things. And so he goes to his blog and he writes a rant about it and complains about it. And he says, look, I could do a better job in an hour. And so he does. He actually sits down and he redesigns the American Airlines website for his readers to say, see how easy this is if they just weren't idiots. And that's kind of how he frames it. Like the, the user design people at American Airlines just must be morons. Um, and he gets an email from a user experience person at American Airlines saying, we're, we're actually not morons. I work with some really talented designers, but you have to understand all the trade-offs in here. We could make a really clean design, but you have to understand that different parts of the organization own different parts of the website. So, you know, the travel promotions people have to have a little corner of it and the um, last minute travel deal, people have to have a corner of it and so on and so on so that you get this crowded space because the organization has all these different priorities and you end up with this website that isn't optimized for users. Um, but we're working really hard on it. The redesign is going to take us a couple of years, even though it only took you an hour. Um, 
but ultimately, you know, we're going to, I think he says something like, we're going to keep on keeping on and make it all better. Um, the blogger publishes that note with the user design guy's permission. American Airlines sees this. They track him down using email and they fire the user design guy, ultimately. And it does take them three years to redesign their website. That's a really cynical version of the trade-offs that organizations face. Um, but it's also really telling about the optimized experience of the organization. It just doesn't really exist, even though we're all convinced it does. Um, that organizations are just a big bundle of trade-offs, and you have to think when you push on one, when you push one down, something else is going to pop up. That's the nature of organizations. And at the same time, the guy who could make a really fantastic website that was clean and clear and optimized for the user experience, if he wanted to also fly planes and get people there on time and deal with the bureaucracy at airports and do all the other myriad things that airlines do, he'd have to build an organization that looked an awful lot like American Airlines. Uh, I, I also think it's worth pointing out that it's not simply a solution to free up the design guys from the rest of the organization, because that's a reaction that people often have, um, in that it's not just a matter of uh, company politics, the fact that various parts of um, American Airlines own pieces of the web, web page. That's actually necessary to make sure everything's coordinated and synced. You can imagine if the pricing guys somehow uh, get disconnected from the web interface and its design and its updating, that'll wreak havoc on their pricing models. Everything has to fit together, and that's a much more complicated pro proposition than just designing a, a um, presenting a clean design to the end user. Yeah, We even saw this at the uh, Department of Justice. I, the second to last chapter of the book, we talk about uh, reorganizing the FBI in the wake of 9-11. And there was a guy um, at the Department of Justice in New York who helped prosecute uh, the mob in New York. And he was frustrated at the, that resources were being pulled away from the mafia and put towards terrorism. And Ray asked him, well, what would you do? And he said, well, there are all these lawyers in Washington, D.C. who have to approve um, my subpoenas and other paperwork. And I just get rid of them. We, I don't need the oversight. Just give me, you know, if you get rid of them and take the salaries and put it into mob pro prosecutions, everything would be fine. Yeah, it's an all too common reaction that's just another useless layer of bureaucracy. What he had in mind is that there's already someone overseeing him in New York City. So what does he need these extra bureaucrats in Washington for? Similarly, um, I do think, though, at the same time, um, we're not presenting the world as a fully optimized place. So I was reading an article in the, from last week's New York Times magazine last night about the current uh, president of Sicily, who um, is trying to get rid of an entire layer of provincial or of regional organization. There are nine provinces in Sicily, and he just wants to get rid of them. He sees it as nothing but pointless bureaucracy that exists to, to uh, allow the mafia to extract greater resources from the state. And, you know, he may well be right about that. 
Uh, we're not presenting the world as the best of all possible situations. We merely want to say, before you get rid of the provinces, you should think very carefully about what they do. And I think I think that's a pause that needs to happen. You know, too too often, especially in the business literature, you have people who um, have a really shiny briefcase and a and a five box model. And if you just follow the model, we can solve all of your problems. You know, in fact, earlier today, I was uh, having the same argument I had a year ago with somebody about simple personnel management things like top grading. Oh, just fire the bottom ten percent every single year, and everything will work out fine in the end. And it's like, well, there's a lot more connections and trade-offs and things that are going to happen if you do that. And we need should probably take a pause and go, hmm, what, what are all of the ramifications of all this? And you see it, and you guys talk about it, even in things as simple as designing jobs and designing incentive systems around jobs, right? It, in the scientific management days when you were shoveling coal, it was really easy. How much can you shovel? But as knowledge work gets more complicated and as organizations get more complicated, there's so much that goes into defining what a good job is that can't be measured. And if it can't be measured, it can't necessarily be monetized. And there's other things that can be measured, so maybe we overweight them. It's a, it's a delicate system that I think needs that pause. Yeah, I think on the topic of incentive design specifically, if there's one message we want to push, or if there's one message that the org econ literature pushes, it is that you do, in fact, get what you pay for. Uh, if you pay for better test scores, you'll get better test scores. That's different to the extent that test scores are perfectly aligned with learning. Then you got what you wanted. But it's rarely the case that there exists this perfect alignment. I think the um, forced curve in incentive design is an extremely interesting topic. Um, and it does have its own set of um, unexpected but might have been anticipated consequences. I've heard on a number of occasions from people who work at companies that have this sort of evaluation system that uh, there becomes intense competition for the really awful employees. So managers don't have to give their good employees this failing grade. Um, I was speaking to someone who uh, is quite high up, who's quite high up at a largish bank, um, who was saying that um, you know they laid off a number of people last year. So now what do they do? They already got rid of the people who are the bottom 10%. So the compromise that they've come up with is that uh, this year they'll count the people that they fired um, among those who get the bottom grade. But then, so on the one hand, you're no longer giving failing grades to people who are awful employees, but God uh, takes away the point of the bottom tail of the curve. So there's no, there is no answer. There's no simple answer. There, there are surely bad systems, and there are systems that are better suited to certain situations. But it's not like there's a vertical hierarchy of good versus bad incentives. Yeah, if, if somebody takes you out to lunch or you go out to lunch with someone and they say, I have a simple solution that's going to solve all your problems, make sure they pay for lunch and then don't invite them back because there's just there's no such thing. Life is just way more complicated than that. And I think everybody kind of instinctively knows that. But at the same time, when they start thinking about, you know, uh, using an easy solution in their organization, it's like it becomes this shining thing that they can't take their eyes off of and they grab onto it. The, the example I use is that if, if you're remodeling an apartment, nobody would just hand you a sledgehammer and say, go to work, right? 
you have to know what the blueprint is. Otherwise, you're going to end up, you know, knocking through the pipes in the kitchen wall and spraying water all over the electricity and setting the place on fire. And the building's going to fall down, worst case scenario. Um, and yet people take that approach to organizations all the time. We're just going to, you know, knock down this wall. It might be a, re- re- a retaining wall. Not really sure, but let's get to it. Hmm. Now, so you you talk about to to that end. This this is a um, a highly kind of complicated thing. And in the in the old days, there was labor and management, and management was there to measure. Um, but in in the the new way this works, and in the complexity that it holds, what uh, what are what are managers good for? Why should we keep all of those people in in Washington D.C. etc.? I, I know I know there are right answers, but uh, I think sometimes it became, can become really really hard to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Especially when, you know, you've got a manager standing over your shoulder, breathing down your neck, asking for results. Or if you end up with a a crappy manager, and there are plenty of them around. But management as a function actually serves a real purpose in the organization in terms of both. um, The way we talk about it in the book is mainly as a kind of a conduit of information. So you actually need to get the right information to the people who are going to be making decisions, and you also need to have eyes on tasks to make sure that tasks are getting done the way they're supposed to. Um, This isn't in the book, but one of the things I've come to believe since having written the book is also just the fundamental necessity of managers as as people who help help, uh, employees find progress, that they are actually a point in in the organization where there can be a lot more humanity than there typically is. Um, and it ties back to Teresa Amabile's work on the progress principle, right? The idea that uh, managers are there to make sure that people feel like they're making progress every day, so that they have that, so that there's better fit between your employees and the organization. I think that um, at the same time, uh, one thing that's useful to appreciate um, in understanding why you might not love your uh, unconditionally love your boss. And also maybe uh, appreciate the challenges that he faces a little better is that his job is not to make you happier. His job is to make you and the organization productive. So there's a, a study that I like to cite. It is a um, it was conducted as random assignment. There were some um, managers at textile factories that got empathy training and others that didn't. And the people who worked for the ones who got empathy training were no more productive. They reported they liked their bosses more, but they didn't sew any more T-shirts than the ones who worked for people who didn't get the extra empathy. So um, it's important to appreciate what his task is, his or her task is in the organization. The other study that we cite is another textile factory study done in India. If you think... You know, let's take all the man. We actually we wrote a column at Slate, and one of the responses in the column was, "Well, I know what we should do with managers. We should take them all out and shoot them," which is not an uncommon response when you ask people about managers. But in fact, there is a world out there where there were no managers. Effectively, there was no management, and there were these textile factories in India, um, and a bunch of economists from Stanford and London School of Economics worked with Accenture to try to institute good management practices in these um, in these factories. And they did effectively was like a double-blind study where they looked at a, a bunch of factories 
They applied good management techniques to some. They did no, nothing in other cases just to see what would happen. And it turns out that good management practices, even as basic as they sound when you list them, um, were phenomenally effective in improving the productivity of these factories. And the factories were in really bad shape. There was broken machinery in the hallways. There were, you know, yarn spindles broken. At one of them, the um, owner actually had to wear the inventory key around his neck so nobody would steal from him. So every time you needed a new spool of thread, you'd have to go find the owner to go open the um, the supply closet. Um, so they were really badly run. So it's not a huge surprise that applying some good basic management practices would make things better. But anybody who says, well, that's self-evident, it wasn't actually self-evident to the guys, run, the people running the factories. You know, in, it was... in fact, uh, when the people who ran the study asked a number of their participants about why they didn't do obvious, follow obvious management principle one, two, or three, uh, the response was very often, well, why would I do that? It's a waste of money. Like, why do I need to track stuff? Why do I need to know how much stuff is coming in and how much stuff is going out? When I see the supply closet's empty, I buy more. And, and I think it speaks to uh, not just uh, what they noticed or didn't notice in their reality, but in, in kind of pop culture around if managers disappeared. I mean, I remember in the in the nine or ten or however many seasons of The Office there were, there was a scene where um, one of the managers was gone for three solid months, and, and magically everything was getting done, and you're thinking, wow, that might, that probably didn't actually, uh, that, that would not actually happen in reality, right? So there, there is a role for these, and actually you cite, in addition to that study of the, the, the factories, you actually cite a really interesting anecdotal example about how even the most sort of decentralized, leaderless network that, that we sort of have encountered out there right now, Al-Qaeda, still has some level of basic management practices in handling of expenses. Yeah, the, this was uh, uncovered as a result of um, a CIA operation that got a larger uh, uh, cache of um, data on Al-Qaeda. Included in it was this memo from a senior operative to someone, uh, to one of his underlings, saying, you know, I gave you X thousand dollars to buy an air conditioner to keep the members of the brother brotherhood cool. Uh, and it has come to my attention that you used this money to buy plane tickets to your fam for your family or something along those lines. Uh, and it ends with, next time you better keep the receipts. Uh, you know what the consequences <laughs> will be. And you can just imagine if the consequences for breaking the rules at Al-Qaeda, never mind just intrinsic motivation, aren't enough to keep people in line, what hope is there for the rest of us? Yeah. And, this, you know, these are people who are willing to blow themselves up. And even they are willing to, you know, take money from the till. Yeah. Highly motivated, highly engaged, and yet still have to be supervised in some capacity. Yeah. And that's actually people might, you know, oftentimes a lot of people who work in offices discount examples from textile factories in India or even from Al-Qaeda because it's not their reality. Um, but just recently there's been um, a study by an MIT professor of a high-tech a young company. It's about 500 people now, and she's been following it since it was a startup. And what she and they were started explicitly. They did not. They wanted to be as flat as they possibly could be. There were no managers, and they hired only the best. So they overpaid for talent, so they could keep people, and so that they could avoid having management. And what they've discovered, you know, and they had a very particular culture that was very uh, Silicon Valley esque. 
uh, modeled on Google and Facebook about having, you know, open campus, active and engaged employees, lots of fringe benefits to being at work. Um, and now that there are about 500 people, what they've discovered is their top performers really want managers. That's the one thing the top performers ask for. They say, this is all great and we love it. And, uh, but but how about some management? I think we need some supervisors and some structure. And I actually want to like know when I can take vacation and on and on. And these are highly trained, highly educated um, knowledge workers in a very modern office. And what they really want is just a little bit more structure. Yeah, I, I think it's it's fascinating to me, and it's it's definitely um, counterintuitive and against where the sort of trend uh, is going in a lot of literature of, of no managers. Here's this one simple rule: flat flat hierarchies everywhere, and 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 in, if there is a system where managers are super important, here's the the perfect model for managing subordinates, and this is all we ever need to know. And I think the the real lesson um, that I really appreciated about the book is it, it's really just about sort of taking pause and actually thinking through, and and truthfully, that is not. Not necessarily that new of a concept. I think it goes back into systems thinking and and all of that, and thinking about what are the ramifications of doing all of these things, and then what is unfortunately sometimes leaders are called to decide what is the the least impactful, least harmful uh, version of all of these, and we arrive at the American Airlines website that may not look um, amazing, but it's the best possible system they probably could have designed. So if it's okay with you, I, I want to encourage our readers to check the, the book out for that reason. I, I think it's um, a fascinating book that will teach you sort of how to think more broadly about the organization, your role within it. I, I wonder if it's okay if we could switch from the book uh, to both of you and ask you a few questions. Uh, the first being, what are you, what are you reading right now? So, uh, what I'm reading now relates very directly to what's next. Um, I just finished at Tim's recommendation, King Rat by James Clavell, which uh, is about a, um, it's uh, fiction, but uh, based on his own experiences at a POW camp in the Pacific uh, in the Second World War. And the reason why it relates to what's next is, to some degree, it's about what happens in a closed economy, this POW camp, when you outlaw markets. Um, and in some ways, you can contrast that with the function of POW camps, where um, laissez-faire was allowed to have its way. Yeah, the cool thing about, so there are a bunch of studies about um, POW camps in particular and about survivability rates, and POW camps that had a less rigid hierarchy and tended to have better laissez-faire markets and higher survivability rate, as opposed to the one that Clavel actually lived through and described, which had a rigid hierarchy and uh, black market trade and also had uh, higher death rates. I should say, though, that the book is not about the glories of the market. Uh, it's about explaining to people, first of all, um, what the basic principles are that make so many of us um, seem to think that the market will solve all of our problems, but also kind of why it won't. And most importantly, uh, the many new forms of market institutions that are springing up, some enabled by uh, new technologies, some just enabled by new thinking, um, that is kind of a real-time experiment involving all of society. And uh, there isn't really much of a public conversation on what the consequences of these various experiments are. 
Like the guy who many of these Silicon Valley um, entrepreneurs, um, I was talking to someone about Uber yesterday. The Uber founder really does have Ayn Rand as his uh, favorite author of all time uh, and really believes deeply in these ideas. When you have someone like that who's designing economic institutions, it's important for us to talk about what it means for our lives. Yeah, so that's that's what we're working on for the next book, is talking about the market, how it functions, and also all of the mechanisms that have been developed, um, both from any economic theory and applied to the real world, but also developed um, by business people looking for new opportunities and how that's creating this giant experiment that we're all living in. You know, if I may, I, I see an interesting trend, and I love it in, in both of your work, in that the org was really sort of occupying that middle space between no managers, totally free and open open organizations and open everything, or here's the perfect tool, the one best way to structure your, your organization, and you guys are kind of in the middle saying, well, it's a little more complicated than that, and let's appreciate all the nuances. And now I sort of see something similar in, in markets, right? So we could have total laissez-faire, we could have um, some level of structure, and the reality is, you know, whether <laughs> the, the reality, though uh, certain politicians would probably not want us to admit this, is those sound bites aren't wholly accurate from either side. A little more nuanced, a little more complicated. Let's take a pause and let's appreciate it for the complexity uh, that it is. I would emphasize that to even have that conversation, um, we need to understand a bit more about the animal that we're talking about, um, what it is that free that markets are and might might be and might not be good at, the, the problems that they solve and the problems that seem to have, um, uh, the problems that seem to have been created by their well-meaning application. Yeah, but that was exactly the point of, or is exactly the point of the org, is before you start wanting to tear something down, you you really have to understand what it is you're talking about and what the framework is. And that's very much the approach to the, the new book as well. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that's not the approach of so many people who get into leadership positions, or even if you don't get into leadership positions, on how to fix the the organization. And I think there's some wonderful lessons uh, in there. It's a book that I, I can tell you from my own experience really, really makes you think and really gives you things that you have to chew on and, and really kind of think about. But truthfully, you need to arrive at that. You need to understand the complexity of the organization before you can affect what will be a lasting and sustainable change. So um, so I thank you guys for writing it. I want to encourage our listeners to check out the org, better understand the underlying logic of the office. Ray and Tim, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks, Thanks a lot, so, David. Thanks so much for having us. 